When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today is another mini-sode, but with a different bit of a twist. This week for the mini-sode, I'm going to focus on a classic experiment in the world of psychology. Traditionally, the mini-sodes are focused on a cognitive bias, but I wanted to start to weave in these like classic experiment episodes to the mini-sodes because I think that these are experiments that are, first of all, very well known, um, maybe in name only, not necessarily in practice or what they actually looked like at the time. And second, I think it fits in with the cognitive bias series in that it helps to better explain how people think about these experiments and some of the biases that these old experiments introduce to the field that we still have either a hard time shaking off or still kind of rely on. So that's the rationale for kind of shifting or adding new things to the mini-series And this first experiment that I'm going to talk about is the Stanley Milgram obedience experiment. So let's get into it. This original experiment took place in about 1961, and there were actually several different variations of the experiment, but I'm going to be talking about mainly the first iteration of the experiment. So this experiment was run by Stanley Milgram, who was raised in, I believe he was raised in America by Jewish parents and was in his like career as a psychology professor researcher after World War II had ended. And for a lot of people in the field in post-World War II, there was a lot of questions of how do we explain or make sense of the rise of the Nazi party and why a enormous country like Germany, well, I guess not enormous, but a country like Germany would fall to the, like, pressures of this fascist government or small political party. And so that's where the, the foundation for Milgram's experiment is. He's trying to understand how did people carry out, everyday average Germans carry out the orders of the Nazi party. And at the time that he started to plan this experiment, There were trials going on for several members of the Nazi party 
And he was particularly inspired by one of the defenses that was put on by, I believe it's Eichmann. His defense was essentially, I was just following orders. And so that's where Milgram gets this idea of there must be something about obedience to authority that influenced why the Holocaust was able to happen. Not just that we are obedient to authority, but that the obedience overpowers our existing beliefs, sense of ethics, morals, values, everything. He he seemed to believe that obedience could override all of what makes up like your core beliefs. So like I said, the study begins in 1961. They recruited men between ages of 20 and 50 who were recruited in New Haven. So Milgram was working out of Yale. So these were participants who were recruited mainly through the newspaper uh, who lived in New Haven. And it's important to note because one, all of the persons were male, which skews the results, right? Because we don't know how women would interact in this situation. They're all male. They're all able to live in a place like New Haven, which if you don't know anything about is a wealthier area. And if we're in a neighborhood of an Ivy League school, then we're also talking about people that are highly educated, regardless of like what background, like uh, what job they have. They're probably more likely to be educated, have more access to resources. And the overwhelming majority of the participants were white, although they do interestingly distinguish out who was Irish. So even though it was the 1960s, we were still separating the Irish out from white people, apparently, at least Milgram was. So I just say that to that. This is one of the, I think, critiques that we can have of these older experiments is that they were done in very homogenous groups and that it's really difficult to take a homogenous group like a group of young to middle-aged white men in a wealthy neighborhood and say that everyone behaves in the same way. So that that's just like a caveat to this, not only this study, but a lot of studies that were done back in the day and studies that are still done today. These men were recruited. They were told that they were participating in a memory and learning study at Yale. So they came into Milgram's lab, which was on the Yale campus and in like a very fancy building. And they were paid $4.50 for their time, which according to an online inflation calculator would be about $42 today. So a moderate amount for uh, essentially a couple hours of of their time. Once the participants came into the lab, and they came in one at a time, so they didn't come in as a group. Once they came into the lab, they were introduced to the, quote, experimenter who was part of the study. He he was a biology teacher who was wearing like this kind of official looking lab coat. The participant was then introduced to the learner who also was a part of the study, but was presented as though he was also someone who came in off of the streets. So when the participants came in and meet the experimenter, they know that he's part of the study. But when they meet the learner, they don't know that he's part of the study. And that is actually one very, very crucial point that has real big consequences for how we do research now. And this is one of the reasons why these studies can't happen anymore is because of the level of deception. But I'm going to talk about that at the end. So they meet the experimenter, they meet the learner, and they're told by the experimenter that they're participating in this study to see if punishment impacts learning and if there is a like certain level of punishment that's best for learning. So that's the premise. The participant, again, does not know that they that the learner is part of the experiment, and they then are told that they're going to draw a name out of the hat to see who will be the teacher and who will be the learner. But of course, it's rigged, and the participant is always picked to be the teacher, and the learner is always picked to be the learner. But the participant feels like it was random and that they randomly got this role of teacher. 
the learner, the confederate, is then strapped into a chair in front of the participant and has electrodes placed on him. So he's strapped into the chair, not just sitting in a chair, strapped to a chair with fake electrodes on them that do have a very tiny battery hooked to them. And so the experimenter shows the participant that the electrodes have electricity and the learner gets shocked and like makes a comment about like, you know, oof, ouch or whatever. Experimenter tells the participant, don't worry, the shock may be painful, but it cannot cause permanent tissue damage. So that's what they see in the room with the learner. The participant is then taken outside to the like teacher's room and is shown the panel for the electrical shock machine that they're going to be using. And it has this, it looks real, but it's fake. There's no shock that comes out of it. But it has a like voltage measurement on it that goes from, I believe, 30 to, or 45 to 450 volts. And at different intervals across the top, it has verbal labels such as slight shock, moderate shock, strong shock, very strong shock, intense shock, extreme intensity shock, danger, severe shock, and then the last verbal label is just three X's, like danger. (laughs) So that's there for the participant to see. They then begin the learning task. The participant reads a pair of words to the learner who's strapped into the chair, and then he reads a list of about four words, and the learner has to choose which of those four words goes with the pair that was read at the beginning. And this was a key part of the experiment was that it's supposed to be like a pretty low stakes task, this like verbal learning task. If the learner says the wrong answer, the participant was told to shock him. So starting at 45 volts, you shock. And at each time there is another wrong answer, the participant is supposed to go up one level of voltage. So from like 45 to 50 volts. And they're supposed to say out loud the amount of voltage that they are now hitting. So the learner would say the wrong word. The participant would then have to say 50 volts and hit the the shock. Now, remember, it's not actually shocking the learner. The learner is in on the experiment. Uh, An important detail is that the learner has a predetermined time to give the answers wrong. So for every participant, the learner was giving the same wrong answers because it's fake. It's not actually a learning trial. For the first few levels of electricity, the learner essentially doesn't make any sounds. He doesn't protest. He doesn't get upset. He just kind of, you know, quote unquote, takes the shock. At 300 volts, the learner starts to pound on the door, essentially like, get me out of here. This is too painful. And then stops responding to the trials. It stops responding to the words. The participant is told that even though the learner is no longer answering, he should still continue to read each word trial. And if the learner does not respond within five to 10 seconds, he should treat that as a wrong answer and continue the shocks to keep moving up. So at 300 volts, the learner pounds. And then after 315 volts, the learner pounds one more time. And then he never responds again. So he's never giving an answer and he never like pounds or cries out in protest. During the entire process of this experiment, the experimenter, the guy in the lab coat, has a series of prods that he's supposed to tell the participant if they refuse to continue. They don't want to keep shocking him and they escalate. So prod number one is just please continue and it escalates to prod number four, which is you have no other choice. You must go on. 
and then they also could remind the participant that the shocks cause no damage. Now, it's hard to believe that they would internalize that the shocks cause no permanent damage when they hear the guy in the room pounding on the door or pounding on the wall. After it's all over, which it ended in two ways. Either you went to 450 volts, which was the uppermost extreme on the generator panel, and then the experiment would say the trial is over because you've reached the most punishment. Or the participants might say, uh, I don't want to continue. I don't want to shock him anymore. And the experiment would end. Regardless of how the experiment ended, the participant then got invited to this, like, interviewed about his experience. They administered some measures to kind of track, like, anxiety and I think some personality traits. And then was told that it was fake and was introduced to the the learner who was in on it to show the participant that he's fine, he's alive, and he hasn't been harmed, that there was no shock. So this is another part of why we don't do experiments like this anymore, because the damage that this experiment did to people was very, very intense. And this debrief that they did where they just was like, hey, look, this guy is alive, wouldn't be a sufficient amount of debrief in today's research standards. So with all of this data they got out of the the experiments, Milgram made a couple of conclusions. So one thing he reports is that there's there were quite a few, I guess, like behavioral signifiers that people were uncomfortable during the experiment. He observed that most of the participants appeared to be visibly nervous. A lot of them began to sweat profusely, shake or like start trembling, stuttering in their speech, biting their lips, groaning and digging their nails into their hands, like into their palms. So most of the people who were in this experiment, who as they kept thought they were shocking the other guy more and more, began to have these like physical symptoms or signs that they were stressed out. Of the 40, 14 of the people displayed some type of nervous laughing or smiling during the trial. And there's actually, if you read the original study, there's a few quotes of the participants who had nervous laughter trying to explain during their debrief that they weren't laughing. They didn't think it was funny. It was just kind of like a uncontrolled reaction. Three out of the 40 people had seizures during the experiment. And one of those people had such a bad seizure that the experiment had to be stopped because he had to be taken to the hospital. So I I bring that up to show that the participants were not having a good time in the experiment. And this is important for two reasons. One is that when we think about ethical research, participants shouldn't be under this much distress when they're part of your study. And then two for conclusions about the study is that, you know, Milgram essentially concludes that people will just obey when they're told by an authority figure, but it's clear that people are under great levels of distress to go against their values or to, to harm somebody. And then when the experiment was over, they uh, the participants were observed to either release a heavy sigh, kind of wipe at their brow, rub their eyes. It was described as fumble cigarettes or shake their heads like kind of resignedly. So most of the participants were stressed out during the actual experiment. And then when it was over, they engaged in behaviors that kind of demonstrated they felt relief and were maybe still feeling nervous or feeling ashamed of what they'd done, like, you know, shaking their heads in, in disdain. Milgram then counted up how many people made it to which um, voltage. And remember, 450 was the highest voltage, and that's the one that had the triple X like label over it. 26 of the 40 people went all the way to 450 volts. 
the other participants stopped somewhere between 300 and 450. 300 was when the learner pounds on the wall and is the first example of distress that the learner displays. And so some people in the sample stopped there. But another thing to remember is that even if they wanted to stop, they were told multiple times by the experimenter that they had to keep going. So all this to say, Milgram's conclusion in the paper is that obedience was at play and that even when obedience conflicts with a person's morales or ingrained beliefs, they would still comply with the authority figure. And this essentially was Milgram saying that his theory about how the Nazi party was able to carry out a holocaust in a country was because of this obedience factor. Like it, He answered his own question, essentially. Now, interestingly, at the end of this original study that he publishes, he has, I want to say 15 like questions or considerations that have to do with what was it about the study that may have elicited these results. And many of his replication studies were based on these observations he had. One of the most important ones being that he thought the setting of being in Yale might have had something to do with why the obedience effect was so strong that the experimenter wearing a lab coat in a Yale lab carried more authority than maybe just some guy or somebody in a lab coat in any other setting because it carried the weight of like the Yale reputation with it. So one of his other replications was to do this study off campus. I think they even did one replication like in an apartment building, like a lower income apartment building to kind of show that it was a less prestigious environment. Now, I haven't read through all of the various um, versions that Milgram himself did. People throughout the years have replicated Milgram's work in some way, obviously not in the original way because we can't do that anymore, but there have been many attempts to replicate this and there are a vast array of results. Milgram himself even had some versions of the study where he had almost a 0% rate of obedience. And some rates were even higher than his original study. So this study was about 80%. He had some that were like 100%. So I bring that up to just note that I don't know if Milgram's original observation or interpretation of his own results was correct. I do agree with him that there were a lot of factors about the study that probably influenced why someone would sit there for so long and keep shocking someone, even though they were under the impression that it was hurting or killing the learner. Many people have written a lot on this topic and there is a article in the sources from the Atlantic which does a pretty good summary of the different camps of people who have different interpretations of Milgram's study. I think the most important takeaway from Milgram's study is why we don't do these types of experiments anymore. So interestingly enough, this study came out, was published, or this paper was published in 1963. In the 1970s, around 1973, a federal law was passed that limited the type of research that was allowed and introduced this idea of an IRB or uh, internal review board, which means that if you're going to do any research, particularly with federally funded projects, you have to have this independent revo- review board look at your project and say, is this going to harm people? And if it's going to harm people, how are you going to help them? If the harm is necessary to the research, it can only be allowed in a certain way. Otherwise, you got to redo your study. It's all, all, all to protect the rights of people who participate in research because prior to this law, 
you could really do anything you wanted <laughs> to people. And that's where a lot of these like infamous studies come from is the era before this law where you could get away with a lot like telling someone to keep quote unquote shocking someone and not letting them or pressuring them to not stop even when they protested. One thing that happens nowadays if you're going to do a research project is you have to outline very clearly what are the potential risks of participating. Now, in my experience, Mostly the type of research that I've done is more based around distributing surveys and asking people about their experiences. So the risk is pretty minimal, but I still have to extrapolate what could be the worst potential risk that would happen if someone were to take this survey. And often, especially if the survey is about sensitive topics, the worst thing that could happen is that you do activate someone, like asking sensitive questions about maybe their past, their current mental health. It can be activating and it can also be dangerous to their well-being if it could potentially cause so much distress that they have a mental health crisis. So to mitigate that risk, what we have to do in those types of projects is say we're going to list resources at the end or at the beginning for the participant to use if they find themselves in distress. And we're also going to do as part of informed consent, we're going to list, list out all of the ways that someone could potentially be at risk while participating in the study. So that means that before the participant even looks at your questions, they're giving a fair warning that you may be asked about your childhood, you may be asked about your mental health, you know, you may be asked about things like sexual assault, and you may have an adverse reaction to that. So if you have an adverse reaction, here are the steps that you can take. We also provide them with the name of the principal researcher. So like if I'm running the study, it would be my contact info. For student researchers, we give them the name of like the chair or the supervising faculty member so they can contact them. And then we give them the contact information for the IRB that's overseeing the whole project. So participants in your research project have to be able to go essentially to the institution and say, you're letting someone do this project and it harmed me. Because unfortunately, there's a possibility that the researcher won't report that on their own, right? We want to believe that everyone will do their best, but there's a possibility that a researcher wouldn't report an adverse reaction. And so you have to give the participant the opportunity to go essentially above your head and report it because the IRB's job is to stop anything that would be harmful to a participant. I already mentioned this, but the debrief that Milgram did also probably wouldn't be considered sufficient in this day and age. If you're going to do an experiment where people are like coming into the lab and you're upsetting them or causing them distress as part of the research, you have to be super, super clear about how you're going to do the debrief. And it's usually best practice to have somebody who wasn't part of the experiment be part of the debrief. So to have the guy in the lab coat who's telling you, you have to go on, you have to go on, do your debrief, you're probably not going to get the most you want out of it or to be able to be honest because you were just in a room with this guy and he was telling you, you have to keep going. So it's best practice to have somebody else, particularly in this case, you might want to have someone who has clinical training, who can debrief anxiety or extreme stress reactions and can provide the participant with maybe resources to continue therapy in the community or crisis resources if they anticipate that the rest of the day they may still be experiencing these like behavioral symptoms. So the debrief was not comprehensive enough and it didn't have the right people doing it. You need to have someone new doing the debrief. And these debriefs are super, super important when you do any type of deception. And deception is like its whole own category in an IRB application where if I'm going to use deception at any point of my study, I have to be super clear about what is the actual deception? What am I going to do to 
help the participant know what the deception was when it's over and how crucial is it to my study. If I can do my study and get the results I'm looking for or get the data I'm looking for without any deception, then it would be best practice for me to proceed to do the study with no deception or more minimal forms of deception. Some forms of deception can be like when I'm recruiting for a survey, maybe I don't put in the title exactly what I'm looking at because I don't want participants to come in with a bias that they need to answer their questions in a certain way to get certain results, right? So if I'm studying like anxiety, I may not put anxiety in the promotional materials because I don't want only anxious people to participate. I want everyone to participate to get a better picture of maybe lack of anxiety or, you know, different levels of anxiety. I I don't want to recruit just people who would respond to that title because they identify with it. There are still studies that happen where uh, there are like people who are part of the experiment participating in the experiment along with the participants. That's an okay form of deception. You just have to have a plan for how are you going to reveal that the people the participant was alongside were part of the experiment. And as I noted before, the kind of side effects of participating in this study were quite high. And it would probably be in the most ethical consideration for Milgram to have stopped his study after people started to have seizures, right? Or he would have needed to report that as an adverse reaction. If you're stressing people out to the point of seizures, then you either need to implement some sort of screening technique so that if someone has a history of a seizure disorder, they can't participate in this particular study, or you end the study or change it in some way so that you're not distressing people to the point where it could trigger a seizure episode because that's not safe. It's not safe for the participant and they didn't come into the study knowing that that's a likelihood. There are certain studies that we got to do to figure out like if medications or certain treatments work and it's there's a high likelihood you're going to have an adverse reaction, but the person really needs to know that that's going to happen or could happen so that they can make arrangements and have an understanding of what's going on. You can't just have someone show up to a lab and say like, hey, you need to do this thing and then out of the blue, you stress them out so bad they have a seizure, they're not prepared for that. They can't take action to prevent that if you don't give them a heads up. So another reason why this would never fly, and if there was an IRB at the time, Milgram would have had to report after the first seizure to say like, "Uh uh-oh, there's some pretty intense reactions coming from this study that I didn't anticipate at the beginning. So just to wrap up this episode, I wanted to just highlight kind of the variety of interpretations of Milgram's and related studies about obedience. Again, we can't fully replicate it because we could not do this experiment in today's day and age because of the amount of distress and deception that was involved. But there is some evidence that obedience may be culture or time specific, and that because Milgram's sample was people from the 60s, 50s and 60s, it may have been culturally more relevant for them to be obedient and compliant. Whereas if you were to do it in the 2020s, people may not be as obedient or compliant just because it's culturally not as much of a norm now. Same thing, there was a mention in the Atlantic article that they, or no, in the the behavioral scientist article that I cited as well, that when they did it in France, the French sample was like still pretty high on the charts of compliance, even in modern times, but the like US version was not. So it's possible that there's something about French culture that may inspire more compliance than there is in U.S. culture. And both are Western countries, right, or Western civilizations that prioritize individualism. So it's interesting that that difference exists between two more highly individualistic cultures. And the last, I think, most important thing to consider is that 
the way that Milgram measured obedience may not be the most accurate. He kind of measured it on a binary of obedient or disobedient. And as you'll read in the Atlantic article, if you check it out, there are quite a few authors and researchers that point out that obedience may not be a binary like that. And then in fact, if you look at the behaviors of the participants, many of them did try to protest, resist, indicate that they were uncomfortable, whether it was through their words by saying I'm uncomfortable or through their actions by the nervous laughing, the shaking, the sweating. There was some form of pushback to the experiment and to the experimenter. It just may not have been 100% disobedience. And it is possible that because there is like a baseline of resistance or discomfort that you could then use that as a foundation for teaching people how to be maybe more assertive or how to follow through with their resistance if they're feeling uncomfortable in a situation. We have lots of examples of assertiveness training or lots of more behavioral modalities that are aimed at helping people to say what's on their mind and be interpersonally effective that kind of builds on this idea that there is a way for you to know if you're uncomfortable with the situation. We have that already built in to ourselves How do we take it to the next step and then teach you how to either act on it if that's what you want or not act on it and decide for yourself what the situation calls for? So I I really liked that interpretation that it's not necessarily that people are just automatically obedient. It's that many people may not have had a situation where they were taught how to use their skills to continue to resist even when they're uncomfortable. And I sure I've made this point before, but I and I tend to make it in my personal and professional life a lot. But anytime you're measuring something on a binary, you're setting yourself up for failure. There's nothing in human behavior that is a yes or a no. Everything can be measured in a spectrum. Well, there I go, setting up a binary, right? Everything or nothing. Most things can be measured on some sort of spectrum of behavior that accounts for individual differences, cultural factors, environmental factors, all of these things can be influential in how someone defines what is moral or authentic for themselves. And I think that's what Milgram's study is missing is this understanding of different factors. And I would imagine that if we could replicate it 100%, we'd still get pretty intense like results where a large portion of people go all the way to the triple X shock. But then if we were to maybe give them some sort of training, some assertiveness training or interpersonal effectiveness training and replicate it, it might be different. We might have a smaller amount of people that go to triple X and more people stop or back out earlier. So that is a a brief summary of Milgram's obedience experiment. There are three articles cited for this episode. One is the original article written by Milgram himself. Uh, One is from The Atlantic and one is from Behavioral Scientist. Great reads, all of them, especially if you're looking for the more modern updates. Uh, And I'll post those on the sources page. But as always, I just want to say thank you for listening all the way through and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.